When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, you're listening to the Not The Top 20 podcast, sponsored by Betfair. We are an FSA award-nominated podcast in the Podcast of the Year category at the Football Supporters Association Awards. And if you're a football supporter or associated with them and associated with the pod by dint of being a listener, why not vote for us? Uh, Unless you voted for one of the other candidates, in which case fair play, but if you would like to vote for us, the link's in the description of the podcast. And imagine if we won. We won't, we can't, but imagine if we did. Oh. I'm Ali Maxwell, I've got George Elliott with me. Hello, George. Hello. Quite an entertaining weekend, I felt, across the EFL. I wasn't really on top of it, to be fair. Ah. I had my daughter's first birthday party, um, which meant that I missed a away game for Oxford, which is a short walk from my uh, from my front door. I had my brother and my dad around who left the party to go to the game, which was a thriller by all accounts. We'll get on to it later. Um, and yeah, we had a lovely time. So that was nice. But I am I was playing catch up yesterday and this morning. I'm now all, all caught up. She's one of our own. She's one of our own. Eva Alex, she's one of our own. One thing that really stood out for me this weekend, a weekend of incredible knee slides. <laughs> It, is, it truly is it's, it's knee slide season, isn't it? I must admit, though, I think standards in the knee slide industry have dropped. Is that a pun? Standards. S- standards in the knee slide? Yeah. I think they've dropped. <laughs> and, they've, and they've dropped, which is basically how you get from standing to kneeling. <laughs> I mean, everything I say is clever, okay? You don't have to point, <laughs> you don't have to point out every bit of wordplay in every sentence. That wasn't wordplay. <laughs> My point is... And I'd like to know if you agree or disagree with this, because I think it might just be a sign of me getting a bit old and boring. But about half of them really make me wince now, because I understand the importance of the work that grounds people do. Mm. We all understand the importance of having a nice playing surface and working very hard to maintain it. And like around half of the knee slides that we see week in, week out in the winter in the EFL leave huge skid marks. Like, don't leave... Massive skid marks. The grounds people have to deal with your skid marks. Uh, yes. What's going on? Why do you look so confused? Why do you keep saying skid marks? Well, what else would you call it? Slide marks? Slide marks. Mm. <laughs> Stop leaving the slide marks. 
Have you taken like a bung from The Guardian in order to stop us from winning the FSA award? <laughs> Great use of uh, bung. You don't hear that enough these days. Um, I went to a wedding on Saturday and I'm genuinely not making this up. In the groom's speech, he was thanking everyone that had helped make the wedding what it was. Yeah. And he said, it truly takes a village to put a day like this on. <laughs> How good is that? And I know that he does not listen to this podcast. Imagine so. how angry you'd have been if you'd been in listening to that speech. You'd have probably cut him off and gone like, Mate, what are you talking about? There's no, there's not, you don't even live in a village. I'd have thought that he'd have taken a bung. <laughs> uh, vote for us in the FSA Awards and listen to us for the next hour or so. Talking through an entertaining weekend full of uh, skiddy knee slides in the EFL. Cracking weekend in the championship. Uh, it started well on Friday night. Uh, Blackburn won, Preston two. We'll get to that later because there's loads of nice bits and bobs here. Uh, George, hard to know where to start, but I think here's an interesting line. Over the last 10 games in the champ, there are five teams averaging two points per game or more. Decent chunk of teams performing well. Let's start working our way through them. Two of them played at Filbert Street slash the King Power. Leicester nil, Middlesbrough won. Back-to-back defeats for Leicester. Yeah, and it's kind of happened in the way that some of us forecast, I guess, where they've had... Well, <laughs> it's taken you... Ten words. Some of us. Mm. Yeah, I'm Are you the, a bit annoyed? I'm not the only one. That you gave it quite an extended, they're not actually that good. And then by the end of the nine game winning streak, you had basically rode back and been like, yeah, they're amazing. And like <laughs> George from early September would be rolling his eyes at you right no, now. No, because I think there was a period of time where their performances were very good. But it's just more a case where consistently from game to game, um, there were there were too many matches that were on a knife edge. They've had two in the last week or so, and against Middlesbrough in this game here, you know they were they were probably the better side over the course of the game. Borough had a couple of good chances from set pieces, um, but it's a case where Ian Acho gets put through with you know five minutes before the, the Borough goal, dinks Dieng against the the woodwork, and it stays nil nil. And then it's it's Greenwood who manages to score a, an excellent free kick off the inside of the post from 25 yards. And it's those fine margins that were going their way recently. No, this wasn't the case. This wasn't necessarily the same as the Leeds game uh, previously last Friday night where they were just worse off. They were just, you know, beaten by a better side. This was the kind of game that Leicester had been winning. And we've seen this game take place loads of times, like neither team creating loads of chances, Leicester dominating the ball, but not being, doing a great deal with it. Now, I'm going to do the flip side of that now and just say Leicester have played two very good sides in Leeds and Borough, two sides who... I think most of us consider um, will we'll likely finish in the top six come the end of the season. Um, and they come away with no points from those two games, but it's not, it's no reason to panic. Like I, I still think we're going to see plenty of performances from Leicester in the short term future where they're going to be able to uh, dispatch teams with, with relative ease. But this is the first moment, I guess, for Enzo Maresca where he's got to prove himself and show himself and that he can, he can get a side out of adversity because... We haven't seen that yet. Leicester's, you know, Leicester's start to the season under him in terms of a point tally was so good. But now, back-to-back defeats, no goals in, in two games and a real lack of um, creative edge or a real lack of goal-scoring opportunity um, means that he's going to have to get the players back on board and try and raise their game again. So I'm intrigued to see how that is going to look. And it's also interesting that I guess for the first time where you've looked at Leicester's fixtures and thought, okay, we're going to see them tested here. Um, they've come away with, with no points from the two. So certainly, in terms of the um, the championship this season, 
I think this is pretty significant because it now definitely does feel like the race for the automatic promotions isn't, you know, lesser very much within that. They aren't uh, excluded from it and also have to, to win, the, win the title too. Um, their next game is a home game to Watford um, after the international break and Watford are a side that I still maintain, I think, uh, uh, have, a, have a, a general standard that is going to be difficult for teams to, to beat. Even when they play poorly, they don't concede many chances. So it's a game for Leicester where their fans would be expecting them to bounce back to winning ways, but I, I have a feeling it won't necessarily be that easy. I feel like Sam Greenwood managed to score an excellent free, quick, free kick was possibly not giving it enough. No, I, that's fair. Absolutely unbelievable strike. Yeah. And, and so many good reverse angles of it as well, like fan cam stuff from the stands. That's... You know, you're famously not a huge fan of a free kick goal compared to some, and I, I kind of get where you're coming from. But one of the benefits is that there is time for some people, and we'd hope that not everyone would be filming the free kick because I think it's better to live in the moment sometimes. But uh, also not angry that certain people do, and there's a couple of videos kicking around. Greenwood's strike, the trajectory, the power and, and curve on it are just absolutely sensational. So Greenwood, the match winner... I would say that the real connoisseurs of this game know that Seni Dieng was kind of the equally the key man, made some big saves from Pereira, from Vestergaard, from Iheanacho uh, to keep Borough level. And I, I kind of think this game could have fallen either way. Ipswich have drawn level now with Leicester uh, at the top of the championship. They beat Swansea 3-2, just the perfect scoreline because we're now far enough in the season to look at their record at Portman Road, see that they are scoring just over three goals a game at Portman Road. And they're conceding just under two goals a game at Portman Road. So a 3-2 scoreline, pretty perfect. Weird the way that this, not necessarily weird, but kind of surprising to see Swansea <clears throat> dominate the board as much as they did in this game, um, given especially that we don't necessarily associate Mike Duff with that style of play. But it certainly wasn't reflected in the balance of chances where Ipswich were, I think, far better than the 3-2 scoreline suggests. Yes, you know, Liam Cullen got sent off with 20 minutes to go, um, but... You know, 11 against 10, it was actually Swansea who won uh, the game 1-0 for that last 20 minutes with, with uh, lowest scoring very late on. Ipswich were a, a constant threat. They went behind and we've seen them quite a lot of times, I think because of the high, um, you know, the, a lot of goals within their games this season. We've seen them go behind a few times and it doesn't really seem to phase them at all. The game plan doesn't change. The way they set up doesn't change. I think Kieran McKenna as a, as a head coach certainly doesn't panic or, or make any um, kind of knee-jerk reaction changes to, to the game itself. So... Yeah, I mean, Ipswich in this one helped by a brilliant strike from Jack Taylor to to get to restore parity, uh, having conceded fairly early on. Um, they were they were you know this is they've un, they've undergone or they've been through a really difficult spell in their season where I think everyone has been waiting for them to go through a period where they drop points. Everyone's kind of been waiting for them to fall away and going to Birmingham and Rotherham, two teams woefully out of form. And during both game, uh, during both of those games, albeit in very different circumstances, with um, you know against Birmingham they scored uh, twice from two 0 down to to kind of get a point. Although against Rotherham they thought they'd won it late on, only for Rotherham to score in injury time and and, and get it back. You know I think Leeds and, and Leicester fans and Southampton fans are certainly looking at Ipswich or were um, on Saturday to think this is is this the time where they're going to finally fall away. So having gone 1-0 one, one down to that Fulton goal, to come back in the way they did was, was mightily impressive. Um, Connor Chaplin back amongst the goals as well, which is a positive for, for town fans. And yeah, it was, I would say, one of the more impressive displays um, of the of the season so far for them. You know, only 35% possession. I don't think we've seen that many times for, for Ipswich, especially at home. But um, yeah, they're an XG of over three. 
um, loads of shots, creating chances at will. And uh, yeah, a scoreline would that was flatter than more probably would have been more befitting of the performance. Jack Taylor, pow! Yeah, great strike. That was an absolute yeah. banger. Uh, Connor Chaplin scored as well after four without a, go- a goal. I mean, the amount of shots that he takes is an absolute joke. Chaplin, on opening day against Sunderland, Chaplin took two shots. One of them hit the bar. You might remember a lovely lob it was too. Since that day, he hasn't had less than three shots in a league game. And he's started every game this season. So he's had three shots on seven occasions, four shots on three occasions, six shots three times. Uh, he had seven in one game and against Stoke he took eight shots. So Chaplin, whether or not he's scoring, is still peppering the goal. And, and you know, when you have, you know, we talk about finishing quality all the time and streaks and things like that. When you have the, the quality that he does have in his left foot, even if some of the chance, you know, some of the shots that he's taking are speculative in their nature, you know, he's, he's just as likely, I think, to go on a streak where he scores four in four as he is to go four without. Uh, George, Leeds and Saints are both in really good nick. They're part of this uh, over two PPG in the last 10 games batch. Uh, they both won 2-1. Leeds beating Plymouth 2-1 at home. Saints beating West Brom 2-1 at home. Which of those do you want to go out first? I think Saints-West Brom is an interesting game for, for loads of reasons. Again, looking at the kind of way that the, the game flowed. I personally, looking at this game, would have expect, anticipated that we would see Southampton really dominate the ball. You know, this is Russell Martin, this is Southampton, this is a team who I think have completed the most passes alongside Leicester in the whole of the EFL against the West Brom side, who often, as we spoke about last week, are, you know, are very, very capable or very happy out of possession. Um, yet when you look at the kind of possession stats, it was 53% Southampton, 47% to West Brom. And part of that is because... Of course, Saints went ahead very early through uh, a Will Smallbone um, finish from an up, you know, deflected into his path. He's not finish. Plays for the Republic of Ireland. Well done. I thought I saw you think, "Am I going to say that?" And you were like, "No." And then you decided to say it anyway. Um, they, um, which means it was a little bit. It was a beat late. Yeah, and then it was a, a kind of we didn't see. Uh, we saw West Brom from that position try and press Saints more than we necessarily would have expected to. And they did okay. And, you know, when Carl Bartley got the equaliser, it felt like it was on the balance of play um, after they'd, they'd had missed a couple of chances. Brandon Thomas Asante at the end of the first half, possibly with the best one. And when Adam Armstrong scored the winner from close range, it felt very much against the run of play. Like from one all, Baggies were the team in the ascendancy. Baggies were the team who probably felt like they were um, the ones, if, if someone was going to go ahead and win the game, it would have been them. And then with Thomas Asante also missing a, a big chance late on, um, you, you know, I think lots of West Brom fans would have come away from that game thinking they didn't deserve to to lose it. So, you know, even though West Brom had been through a period of, of picking up a lot of the points, put them in a very strong and commanding position in the league this season, I kind of came away from watching that game thinking actually that the West Brom come out of it with more credit than Saints, who, um, despite being impressive themselves, relied on you know maybe the the wastefulness of the opposition and taking their chances when they came. So. Uh, credit to Baggies, but yeah, another big win for us at Martin and Southampton as they continue to stake their own claim to chase down those at the top end of the, of the table. For Saints, six wins in eight. For Leeds, it's six wins in seven or seven wins in nine or eight wins in 11 or nine wins in 13. They're winning a lot of football matches and they did so against Plymouth, which I think was a, a pretty low-key affair and I think it would be okay to suggest that Leeds didn't need to get out of, let's say, third gear in this one. That's because our goal made it easier for them uh, by gifting them two goals, really, with some sloppy play out the back, which Joel Perot cashed in on, which Dan James cashed in on. Uh, and although Argyle did score a goal in the second half and a nice uh, goal, nice 
take it was from Ben Wayne, who really needed that one. And Argyle really need him to contribute in the absence of Hardy and the absence of Bundu as well. Um, but Leeds, 2-1 winners, and I think uh, relatively comfortable, certainly going to form that one. Uh, we had another managerial change. And it's Rotherham. They've sacked Matt Taylor, confirmed this morning. Uh, Rumours swirled all of Sunday about it off the back of a 5-0 defeat at Vicarage Road against Watford. Uh, George, it means that the Championship bottom four have all sacked their manager this season. They've all uh, twisted already uh, as we hit mid-nov, and I dare say there may be a couple of more twists to come uh, as these teams fight to stay in the division. And I think everyone recognises that Matt Taylor had a pretty difficult job, and whoever comes in will have a pretty difficult job. At the same time, he had 52 games in charge, only 47 points accrued, so less than one point per game over his tenure. Uh, and now Matt Taylor back on the market. Rotherham looking for a manager to perform a miracle, really. Or is it a miracle? I can see why it feels difficult to imagine them staying up, given their performance level, given their squad, given their budget. But they're only four points from safety. So at a very simple footballing level, no need to have a defeatist attitude at this stage of the season, is there? Four points, two-thirds of the season to go. Yeah, definitely not. I, I think there seems to be an idea that is reflected in the, the betting odds as well, that Rotherham are the poorest team in, in the Championship, But whereas right now, from a pure points perspective, they're the closest ones to safety, uh, with QPR and Sheffield Wednesday already having made a change in the dugout, as uh, have Huddersfield and also Birmingham in 18th. So you're only looking at Coventry and Plymouth in the bottom seven uh, who haven't made a change of manager thus far and I think both look to me at least pretty unlikely to do so um yeah I mean, this is it's, it's annoying because I kind of say this every time a team like Rotherham sat their manager in the championship but it kind of reminds me of Blackpool doing similar kind of towards the back end of last season sorry midway through last season similar time to, to now it was a bit later in the season um where you're just on a bit of a hiding to nothing like I think if you're a Rotherham manager if you're Matt Taylor and you keep Rotherham up this season in 21st, then you've done an excellent job. Um, it's something that Paul Warren didn't manage to do over the course of a season. It's something that the combination of Warren and Taylor managed last season, albeit obviously Warren left them in a very good position higher up the table. Um, but, it, it, you know, when you, you read the uh, statement on the Rotherham website, and it always is, is the same line when you can tell it's a fairly reluctant decision that's been made, it's, you know, we need to do something, to paraphrase all football owners when they do this, it's we need to do something in order to give ourselves the best possible opportunity of staying up this season. And that has changed the manager. That's the way that things go these days. That is, it is the only major variable that you can completely change and you can bring in somebody else to basically manage the playing side of your company in the hope that the, that the uh, performances or the results improve. Um, I think he's really hard done by. I don't think his reputation in my eyes at least, has done any harm whatsoever. You know, I think the job he did at Exeter was magnificent. And when you go into Rotherham, you, I, know, I can understand why it's a very hard job to turn down. I'm sure there's financial implications for, for Taylor that make that making the switch from Exeter to Rotherham worthwhile. You look at Mark Bonner, who was the other manager strongly linked to that job at the time. And you think the chances are, it feels like now to me at least, that like, is his role at Cambridge coming under threat? And if he does leave Cambridge, he's not going to be getting a championship job anytime soon. So you can understand why he'd take it. But I, I and I know that Rotherham fans look at their squad and they believe that they're good enough to be out of this mess and they believe that another manager could do better. I think as, as a fan, you are always basically programmed to believe that if you're in the relegation zone, the manager is underachieving. I'm just not necessarily sure that that's true. So um, I can understand why they've done it. You look at the 
the you know the the, the bookies lists of, of who's set to, well who's being rumored to take over Chris Wilder as the favorite you've got Neil Warnock who's up there who's obviously already done this job once before at Rotherham in terms of the, the great escape you know maybe those kind of managers would instigate some kind of change in a short-term level that might keep them up there but I think in, in Matt Taylor there's a, a manager back on the market who could do a, a very very good job for a, a club a, a progressive club who without being hamstrung by having the the smallest budget in the league. Yeah, Liam Richardson's a name that was bandied about a bit when we were talking on NTT squad earlier. No inside info, just talking about uh, people on the market, so to speak, that have potentially relevant experience and success to a degree as well. Uh, Richardson's success with Wigan in League One, taking them back up after they'd been relegated from the championship. Uh, so that's an interesting one to keep an eye on. I mean, the new managers in Trey, please can we just not be so bad away from home because it, it, it makes it incredibly difficult every away game really this season has been a write-off um, and that makes it very difficult to succeed home performances have been admittedly better but even so kind of has always felt like they need to be at their absolute maximum to actually to actually win a game and we will see uh, what happens with Rotherham uh, they have twisted and sacked Matt Taylor uh, for Watford <laughs> I mean that's obviously a, a fantastic win I don't put a huge amount of importance on the the result, which is probably quite an annoying thing to hear when you've just won 5-0. Uh, they'd only scored seven in their previous eight league games. So uh, I'd rather have a look at things in another eight league games and see what their goal output was. Then we can decide whether it was Watford being really good or more likely Rotherham being really, really poor. It, it certainly looked like the latter, the amount of space that Ken Semmer had to cross for Mileta Rajevic twice for first half goals. And then the, the lack of shape for Kayembe's goals, Ince and Martins as well in transition. A 5-0, big win for Watford. 4-0 winners were Millwall at Sheffield Wednesday. I wonder if, hypothetically, you were to ever manage your first match as an EFL manager and you'd spent your whole life building up to the moment of being a senior manager of a professional football team in the dugout. I reckon being away at Hillsborough is one of the most iconic places you can start. That was the reality for Joe Edwards, Millwall's manager. And, wow, I mean, best introductory performance I've seen from a Jedward since, well, since Jedward. And um, a 4-0 win. Now, between the boxes, this was a pretty close game. I think the general consensus was that, in general play, Sheffield Wednesday had some positives, just like they have done in most of their games under Danny Roll. But sadly, just like in most of their games under Danny Roll, other than the time that they got to play Rotherham at home, uh, they lost. And that's because inside both boxes, they are lacking confidence, composure, quality, organisation, uh, all of those sorts of things. If Anthony Masaba ever achieves composure inside a penalty box with that final action, he's going to be some player. But he squandered a huge opportunity, which he'd made himself, in fairness, in the first half. And then Millwall scored... And just never stopped from that point. 4-0 winners. George, I'm interested to know what you make of the Joe Edwards appointment at Millwall. Uh, I'm fairly pro-it, as described in the Substack mailbag last midweek. What about you? Where do you stand on this? Jury's out, I guess. I mean, he's obviously got a very exciting um, coaching profile, but so did Jody Morris. A very similar coaching profile from the Chelsea Academy. Jody Morris went to League Two last season and didn't do particularly well. So it's it's clearly a risk. I mean, Edwards has worked with some quality players. He's obviously got a reputation um, at Chelsea for being a very good coach. Um, unlike Morris, you know, he doesn't have the playing career to fall back on, which which may have been the reason why Morris found himself in that kind of position. You know, Edwards has had to 
um, rely on his uh, coaching credentials and the work that he's done in the past to get to where he is. And I think he obviously has a, an impressive CV, but I think whenever you see someone um, walk into a championship job like this, you have to assume that those interviewing him were, were incredibly impressed with the way that he prepared himself and, and his knowledge of the game and the rest of things. So I think it's a really progressive appointment. Um, I think it's an appointment, um, you know, I think when you're replacing Gary Rowett and you want to bring in a different style or a different mentality to the club, um, there's always a concern that there may be a, a difficult transition period. So going to Sheffield Wednesday and winning a game 4-0, even if that might flatter you on the balance of play, um, should go some way to um, you know, to, to assuade any concerns that uh, there might be a clunky process here as they try and get rid of the very rigid Rowett style and try and implement something a bit more um, free-flowing. But we don't know what Edwards wants to do in terms of the, the, the playing style. Like, There's an assumption, I think, that because he comes from Chelsea, because he's worked with talented players before, we're going to see an expansive style of play. You know, Sheffield Wednesday dominated the ball in this game. He's only obviously worked with them for a week or so, so we don't know how they're going to play going forward. But it looked to me like they were very good in transition in this game. You know, They were good at pressing high, winning the ball high, and creating chances on the break. So that in itself feels to me like a better fit for a team like Millwall, who are never going to possess the um, most star quality or the most technical ability in the championship because naturally their budgets aren't going to be able to compete with those parachute payments. So, yeah, excited. I mean, if it was a, a Nathan Jones appointment, for example, we'd probably have more to say because we know more about him with uh, with Joe Edwards. It's just, let's, let's be excited to see what we're going to see. Yeah, I, I refer to the fact that the technical level of the current current squad isn't particularly high relative to the level they're playing at. And so any immediate changes to the team's in-possession approach may need to be soft, as you say. And there were, according to John Kelly, who's a, a reporter and also Millwall Analysis, who we follow on Twitter, there were a few little bits and bobs that, that they sort of dug out. Uh, John Kelly tweeting that Casper Denore, who's, midfields, uh, who's Millwall's midfielder, completed 11 more passes against Wednesday than in any other game this season. So the, the play going through Denore a little more than it has done in any other game this season. Uh, and also little things like Jake Cooper completing more short passes than in any other away game this season. Cooper known for you know being quite accurate with his long passes forward, um, but being asked to, to pass a little shorter than in other uh, away games. Millwall analysis saying... It was clear to see there was an emphasis on getting the centre mids on the ball, even if it was just a bounce pass to bait the press. Uh, so much better to see than a hopeful ball into the channel. So the perfect first afternoon for Jedwards, for the Millwall fans. Uh, happy days for them at Hillsborough. Uh, Friday night, we saw Blackburn 1, Preston 2. Really fun game. Um, just both teams uh, giving it a good go. Uh, Alan Brown scoring an absolute beauty in the first half, latching onto a long pass from Brad Potts. The first touch, exquisite. The second the second touch was a, a powerful finish on the half volley past the goalkeeper. Too powerful for him. And, and then Blackburn came to play uh, between the 43rd and the 90th minute. They had 13 shots to Preston's one. Uh, one of them was a, a nicely taken goal from Sammy Smodix. Really good pass from Andrew Moran. Uh, to assist him, uh, but they didn't make it pay. And they are just a little soft-centred, aren't they? So when Preston kept the ball alive uh, following a set-piece situation right at the end, and it was lifted to the back post, Liam Lindsay just wanted it more, George. Yeah. Or he just got there and headed got it in. first. Wanted it maybe as much as the defender, but he was the one that got there and headed it in. Uh, Preston 
into fifth. Their season is confusing to look back on because they had such a strong start and they had a pretty extended period of poor form. And now they've won this one against the run of play and they're in fifth. In sixth, Sunderland. Sunderland beat Birmingham 3-1. Anyone in particular that we should bring up first? Wayne Rooney. Joe <laughs> Bellingham. Yeah. That was pretty pretty cool, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was good. Scoring against the, the biting the hand the club that, that fed made him. him. And then also hit the woodwork as well. Wow. My, um, interestingly, my, I saw, as I mentioned earlier, had a, a, my daughter's um, birthday over the weekend and my <coughs> 12-year-old nephew who listens to the pod, hello Dash, um, he, we, we played football in the park and we were walking back and he said to me, is Joe Bellingham the real deal? Like, is he like going to be incredible? Yeah. And I was like, no, I don't think so. Oh. And I just like, well, no, I don't want to be negative, but it's interesting. And it kind of made me think that Sunderland have been so clever here, where like Joe Bellingham is obviously a very good player, you know, and they spent, what was it, three million quid for him. Yeah. But because there is this, this perception that he's Jude's brother, I think... That's <laughs> not a perception. Sorry, because, because <laughs> he is Jude's... reality, Because, that. because, because <laughs> <laughs> there's this idea that he's related to Jude Bellingham. No, because, because, because he's Jude's brother, I think there may be a perception that he is going to be like Jude Bellingham Mark II. Yeah. And... You know, from what I can see, even though he he definitely has his brother's incredible knack of being in the right place at the right time and in the box that that, that Jude had at Birmingham, I don't think there's any suggestions necessarily that, that he's going to be, you know, a Ballon d'Or contender in the future. Like this was obviously, you know, it was a great. He started every league game for Sunderland no, no, no. this season. I'd, I'd... He turned 18 like a month ago. Yeah. Leave aside his surname, He's there doing... are not many people doing this. And a lot of the players who've started every single league game for a team in, in towards the top end of the championship, age 17, 18, a lot of them are in pretty interesting positions five years down the line. So, but yes, I, I completely get that. I mean, I, I don't think there is a great deal in Bellingham, but this is like what I was saying about Jude all but I don't think there's a great deal. When you watch him in possession, I doesn't feel like you're watching a generational talent necessarily. I think his off the ball work is very good. Like he presses well, he's aggressive. Mm -hmm. He's definitely got a, a knack of scoring goals and being in the right place at the right time mm -hmm. and a level of composure. But th there's no denying that if he wasn't called, or if he didn't look like Jude, if he wasn't called Bellingham, I feel like the, yeah, you know, this is very cynical of me, but is it very clever of Sunderland to be like, right, we've got Joe Bellingham. Let's, drive loads of minutes to him he's obviously good like he's not out of his depth at championship level yeah because the chances are that he's going to be worth an absolute fortune very soon because he's joe bellingham i take your point completely i also think albeit i played a bit of devil's advocate there uh, i see a lot of instances of you know like wonder kid culture yeah online is almost always the next best thing that's in the what, world this saying. is the best player yeah. i've ever seen there's Often, and this is where our great friends at Scouted Football are the real deal, there isn't often that much actual thought put into in-depth scouting of players. Yeah. And I'm just talking from a media perspective here, from a social media perspective. There isn't always that much thought committed to what a player's good at, what they might not be good at. That's normally quite important. And to what extent that might impact them as they move up the levels. There's normally this just acceptance that... X is a wonder kid and should reach the very top of the game. Of course, we know that, that doesn't work. So yeah. I like that you've that you're not just going down that route because it would be a lot easier in our position to just get loads of numbers by going Joe Bellingham's the next. Should we, just do that and, should we just do that and say? Yeah, <laughs> but I, you know, I th I think the talent that he's showing is highly, highly impressive. I think if you are committing tons and tons of thought to it and and holding him to 
literally the highest standards that you can hold anyone to because Jude sure. Bellingham is one of the best young players of all time of his age. The one thing I would say that's very different clearly to me is like, and it's hard to explain it, is like a, a certain level of physicality in terms of covering the pitch, in terms of just being, I mean, Jude Bellingham is just relentless, isn't he? Yeah. And then, you know, the physical level that he has now isn't surprising given where he was at when he was 16. Now, uh, I don't think that Job is showing that level of physicality. That would probably be my main thing. And so let's... Because te- cause on the ball, technically, I wouldn't say they look that different from when yeah, yeah, Jude was 17. But they, but, but they do play in... Like, I couldn't think of two more different teams than the, the Birmingham yeah. that Jude played for and the Sunderland that Job's playing yeah. for. And I think slightly different roles as well. And I think you know. if you'd put a 16-year-old Jude Bellingham into this... Sunderland team it would have been wild I would have thought <laughs> yeah um, but you know maybe what we are saying here because this is as you say it's un- this is an unfair bit of analysis from me on a player who isn't his brother and therefore shouldn't be held to that standard so let's say from now on let's appreciate Joe Bellingham for what he is not for who he's related to um, and yeah there's no denying that I mean it was a obviously a, a big moment for him to score against the team that, that, that sold him and I remember when he when Sunderland bought him a lot of Birmingham fans were there saying you know, we've we've had your pants down here. You just bought him because he's because he's uh, he's Jude's brother. Whereas actually, I think now from a business level, I'd be amazed if Sunderland didn't make a fair few quid off off Job mm. at some point. There's an argument we should just be calling him Job because that's what he wears on the back of his shirt. Yeah. And when Tony Mowbray was asked about it, he said it's about trying to create his own identity. And oh, I know for so bad. Out. No, but it's a, it's a good conversation. Please don't listen to this, Job. It's a relevant conversation for us to be having in our position as EFL talkers. For Sunderland, two significant things. Basically, every time they win at home with a confident, broadly dominant display, that is significant because last season they only won 7 of 23 at the Stadium of Light. They won less than a third of their home games, still made the playoffs. So it's not an obvious thing to think that if they could turn the Stadium of Light into a, a, a net positive for themselves, then they should be you know, replicating last season's uh, finish, if not better. But they're, not, they're not finish. Much better. George. Yeah. Cardiff 2, Norwich 3. Diff. <laughs> Double nap on the betting show with Cardiff. So Maybe we, we cursed them. I guess this was always going to happen, eh? Yeah. <laughs> Quite a messy game. Norwich take the lead. Cardiff take the lead. Norwich take the lead. Mm. 3-2. What a game for Christian Fasnacht. Yeah, class. He scored the um, opening goal that put Norwich 1-0 up. Uh, Norwich put in a far better display here for whatever reason. I mean, I, I seem to be the curse of Cardiff City at the moment. Um, twice I put them on the, up on the betting show. There are only two home defeats this season. Um, but after four consecutive defeats, after winless six games, Norwich just kind of turned up here and even though they went 2-1 down having taken the lead after goals from Josh Boulder and Callum Robinson um, both were kind of fairly poor defensively I would say from a, a Norwich point of view it was real one-way traffic after that I mean Carlin Grant had a, a one-on-one down the left-hand side which he made a meal of but that was kind of and that would have put them 3-1 up Cardiff um, but it was a, a pretty rare chance um, I thought Fastnack showed some really good persistence um with the uh with the equalizer um where he kind of managed to get onto the ball and spin and put a cross in which Wintel diverted into his own uh, into his own net and then Adam Ida scored two minutes later um with John Rowe having his shot saved into into Ida's path um yeah so this is I think big for David Wagner gets them back in, into winning ways a disappointment for, for Cardiff City 
to lose another home game. Interestingly, this Norwich, and maybe this is just a um, a sign of a club enduring a difficult time. I noticed not a single squad number from one to eleven in Norwich's starting lineup on Saturday. No one to 11s. No one to 11s. So we've got... That's horrible. 12, man. 16, 17, 20, 21, 23, 26, 27, 31, 35, 50. <sighs> I would love to know if that... I mean, we'll have to ask uh, Oily Sailor if um, the that is the highest mean average of a starting lineup <laughs> ever. That's lovely. That's, I'll ask uh, him. On, I see him every Thursday. I'll ask him on Thursday. I'll ask him on Thursday. There you go. We'll find out right now if he listens to the pod. <laughs> um, uh, Hull beat Huddersfield 1-0... Uh, they huffed and they puffed. Uh, Seri, Twine, Philogene, uh, Tufan and Delap all had opportunities. Huddersfield, for their part, I mean, it was it was like a training ground game, defence v attack, where they'd been told just to be the defence. Uh, except it, it wasn't that. It was a competitive championship match and Huddersfield are really struggling to provide any sort of attacking thrust whatsoever at the moment. The shot map for this one really sums it up. Just a lot of orange at one end and one or two solitary light blue shots from pretty low tariff areas from Huddersfield. Uh, in the end, Hull got a winning goal. Uh, Delap with a nice finish, kind of skidded it into the far corner in off the post, I think, or just in, into the side netting. Good finish from Delap, who's obviously enjoying um, enjoying himself at Hull. Being given a bit of time and a bit of patience and a bit of love from Rossinia and he's repaying him with some important goals. I, I I don't really know where I stand on Hull overall. I was wondering if you have a particular grasp on them. I kind of I know they beat Leicester away, but given the way that that game played out, you know it was backs to the wall in the main. I want to see them with a real statement victory against like a top they've, they've ten. Gone to Leicester, and beaten them one 0 Yeah, yeah. I want to see another one, right? But where they do what Liam Rossinia basically wants them to do, which is dominate the ball, <laughs> score a load of goals, keep you know keep the ball, work the ball, play the ball through the thirds, all that stuff. I want to see a real statement from them. Yeah, it, it doesn't feel like they are a side necessarily who have that in them. Like even though they're, a, I think Rossinia deserves a lot of credit because what he's built is a heavily. Um, you know, possession-based side, but built upon a very, very strong foundation. Like they're defensively very good. Like if you if you look at Russell Martin's sides in the past, the, the fallibility with them is that yes, they they retain the ball very well, but it, they often get caught playing up from the back, and that frustrates people. With Hull, I can't really remember an occasion at all this season where that's happened. Um, yet they are the side. I mean, they, they they don't have the level of player of a Southampton or a, or a Leicester maybe to. Um, to dominate the board as much as, as they do. Like you look, you look at Leicester who go to the Riverside um, on Saturday and just completely dominate the ball against Borough. Like I don't think Hull will be able to do that. But they are a side who we know will always play through the thirds. We know they're a side who always help keep the ball down and play out from the back. However, they, they do that from a very strong defensive unit, which I think is is their biggest benefit. And even though I agree they haven't, you know, the, the Leicester result is obviously the best. They, they've also been beaten and well beaten by, by Ipswich and by West Brom. But they have had some pretty big results. Um, like they went to Blackburn and beat them 2-1 away from home. They went to Stoke and beat them 3-1 away from home. Um, you know, statement statement status? Ish. Well, they're just like, you know, they're that's the cool, kind man. of wins. No, 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 mate, that's, that's fine. I, I, I'll stand down. I, I think they are legitimate playoff contenders that will probably be relying on some other sides dropping off rather than being able to, to do it themselves. In the same way that we've seen 
you know, we saw Huddersfield get to a playoff final fairly recently. We saw Sunderland, you know, march into the playoffs last season when that wasn't necessarily expected. I think Hull fit that bracket where they, they need to be taken seriously. And I think Rossini himself, if you were to list the 24, well, I mean, it's about, about 35 now, but all the managers from the championship so far this season and rank them, I think Rossini would have to be very near the top like very near the top because you can see the tangible benefit that his coaching and management style is having on the side, both in terms of playing style and also results. Talking of the playoff picture. Yes. What do you think about the growing feeling, as mm. I perceive it, that there's only maximum two, if not one, but this is... playoff spot up for grabs because Leicester and Ipswich and Leeds and Southampton are, are a lock for the top four. And Boroughs turn around and the level that they're hitting at the moment, albeit they're, they're 10th and two points off the playoffs, you know, their level is, their ceiling is very, very high and people expect them to maybe be the, the fifth place team, shall we say, leaving one open. What do you think about that school of thought? It's a great question. Thank you. Um, so firstly, Middlesbrough are odds against with all the bookmakers to finish in the top six. So they are perceived by the betting markets, to have a less than 50% chance of uh, being in the top six, which, okay. you know, you may agree or disagree, but what I'm saying is... No, I think that's a quite a good barometer yeah. for it in a way, isn't it? So so there are two spots up for grabs. But the, but the notion, yeah, but also or know, more. Southampton are four on, which, you know, gives them, what is it, 80% chance mm. of being in. And again, like, that's the 20% chance of not. Like, yes. I, we are all, you know, we all try to define things in the future as being like, well, this is that and this is this. And we do it a lot on the podcast as well. I'm not I'm not discounting myself from this conversation. Mm. But like two weeks ago, we were saying like, you know, is there only one place, promotion place up for grabs from the championship? Yeah. And everyone's like, oh yeah, because Leicester are already up. Leicester already won the title. They lose two games. And it's like, well, okay, actually, no, obviously there isn't. Like teams do suffer bad runs. Like, even great teams suffer bad runs. Yeah. And so the, the, the notion, like the notion now that, those four teams, Leicester, Ipswich, Leeds and Southampton, are done in terms of finishing in the top four. You know, Leicester and Leeds and, Le- and Ipswich probably are given the games, but, no, but they're not. Like, this is the thing. Like, right. You know, they are culpable to have a, a really, really poor poor stretch of results. So, no, I'm not buying it at all. I think they are eminently likely to be in it, but we can't say there's only two spots up for grabs. I love it. I was, I was chuckling a bit because, um, albeit it's a different sport, I saw some cricket data types that I follow. Right. I'm very interested in the use of data within cricket. On the broadcast, there will be, in a one-day game in particular, uh, the win predictor at any given time, the sort of live percentage chance of, of, of each result. And there's this great rise of like, Coley's amazing innings the other day, Glenn Maxwell's yeah. amazing innings the other day, of like, part of the celebrations on social media from the fans of the the team that win screenshotting and sharing uh the win predictor when it said their team didn't have a, a particularly high percentage chance of winning yeah and then like celebrating it as and i think the phrase that someone used was coley he's the he's the only one that can beat the win predictor and the and the guys are like it says 18 percent chance that's a that's, yeah. an, that's a chance. That's a, a, a fairly all right chance. chance. Yeah, like that's that's basically so Leicester were four to one at the beginning of the season to win the league. So yeah. that's basically the same chance as people were giving Leicester to win the league at the beginning of the season, which was some people being saying like it's already done. Yeah. But this is all just like odds and perception. It's you know, in my mind, and this is maybe a conversation for another podcast. 
broadcasters would be way better off rather than trying to build some like AI win predictor. Mm. Just convert the live odds into percentages. Yeah. Because they are more accurate to the extent that if they weren't more accurate, then loads of people would be making loads of money the whole time. That was basically your job, odds checker sometimes, wasn't it? You'd go on shows and you'd say, yeah. oh, when, oh, oh, the when, next the winner of the next election? Well, here's funny, what the odds suggest. Sorry about that. When, um, <laughs> when Arsene Wenger um, announced that he was leaving Arsenal, I firstly made my first ever five live appearance. I, they probably don't know this there. That was, it was me. Um, from the loo at Odds Checker uh, on, on the phone. <laughs> what? And then I got a call from Sky News being like, can you come on Sky News to talk about uh, who's going to replace Arsene Wenger for the Arsenal drop? And I was like, yeah, of course. My first ever live TV um, nod. Mm-hmm. And they were like, just to warn you, you're going to be on with Thierry Henry. What? And I, so I, they sent a car. I went there and I put my jacket on, tie and all this stuff. And I was like, so nervous about being on with Thierry Henry. They came and got me to like take me through, and I was like, "Where's Thierry?" And they're like, "Oh, I couldn't make it." <laughs> <laughs> You're gonna have to do both roles, mate. Yeah. yeah. Um, gosh, that's nice. That is a nice story. Uh, well, hey, Bobby, what's our French for Vavavoum? <laughs> I'm trying to read uh, Daniel Kahneman's seminal book, "Thinking Fast and Slow." Yeah. I think a lot of the things that we've been talking about I think in the that last sums 10 you minutes. up perfectly i think you both think very fast and very slow yeah it's a yeah it's a, it's a nightmare inside my head mate <laughs> it's an absolute nightmare. i'm trying to i'm reading the book so i can work out whether i should try and think Which faster or quit? slower Fine. yeah um anyway coventry nil stoke nil was a match that happened um we did discuss coventry potential change of shape last monday and they did it started 4-3-3 uh, some Good aspects, some awkward aspects, I think it's fair to say. Uh, and QPR nil, Bristol City nil was also a match that happened. In footballing terms, uh, not a lot to talk about. Uh, in dugout terms, I guess there was because it was Martithi Fuentes' first game in charge at Loftus Road. Uh, nil draw, not a huge amount to shout about. But in the opposite dugout was Liam Manning. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we didn't talk about it last Monday. I think that was for the best because you, you were highly emotional, but you've worked through it. And good riddance. Ah. What what's it like when you're in the automatic promotion places with a manager that saved you from relegation, had a lovely summer building a squad, has uh, walked the walk both in the dugout and the team on the pitch and then you're only 35% of the way through the season. You're, you're dreaming of the promised land of the championship and then he just leaves. I said the word jilted more in the last week than I've said in the rest of my life put together. Because um, you've never been dumped before. Yeah, that's what happens when you meet your wife at a young age. <laughs> um, it's Sorry, to be clear, like 20? Uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. good. No, I just thought, you know. Yeah, 13 years now. I know I've just told, just told her my age. She's one of our own. It's been a whirlwind of emotions, I would say. Like, <laughs> gen- generally, uh, I think Oxford fans, and myself included, felt pretty frustrated at having such a good start to the season and seeing the architect of that taken away. My personal point of view, and I, I completely get this isn't for everyone, and maybe it's because you know I kind of work in football and and have to take a a neutral view where possible is like fair play to him you know he came in it kind of feels like a relationship where both parties used each other to an extent like Oxford if you look at where Oxford were when Manning took over in March on the brink of relegation and you look at where Oxford are now when he leaves like there's no denying that Oxford United as a club have massively benefited from his tenure 
And I also find it amusing seeing some Oxford fans being like, anyone could have done that. You know, just had to get rid of Carl. Anyone else could have done it. I, I completely disagree. I think he's done an incredible job. And, you know, he used Oxford to rebuild his reputation, which was undeniably in tatters after what happened at MK Dons. And I also think, you know, he was clearly being linked to some pretty big jobs in the championship after that first season at MK Dons. You, you consider, you know, in any walk of life, think how frustrated he must have been when he was out of work looking back and thinking if I had just entertained those other clubs in the summer, I could be a championship manager now. Um, there's clearly been a lot of frustration at the club, you know, whether it's the fans who were singing Who Needs Liam Manning basically all game on Saturday at Lake Norient, uh, whether it's the players, including, you know, Ruben Rodriguez, who Instagrammed a picture of, you know, asking a question about Manning's departure or, the, you know, the board themselves who, um, you know, in the statement made it pretty clear that they felt incredibly let down by Manning. But from a Bristol City point of view, you know, I think they're in, they're getting a man. You know, it was it was quite a weird position to be in for me, where I was um, pretty gutted he was leaving and not wanting to leave, but also talking to to journalists in Bristol trying to help them with their um, kind of articles around Manning's appointment, and generally seeing the amount of negativity from Bristol City fans towards Manning was was kind of weird to see. Now I understand that, you know, this is kind of John Eustace light where. Nigel Pearson is an eminently popular manager um, at Bristol City. I think as a, as a man, he had the complete respect of Bristol City fans who understood what he was trying to do on the pitch. And kind of, which is quite rare for fans, completely bought into the idea that it was injuries that were really hampering Bristol City's season rather than, than Pearson's uh, tenure. So his departure was met with, with gen, general um, frustration. And, you know, that frustration was was levelled at the Lansdowne family, the owners of Bristol City. But in my mind, Manning is in is in itself like a very ambitious and exciting appointment. Now, he isn't the most exciting. Like, he is fairly robotic in his interviews. I think that is generally a good thing, where, like, after big results, he would go on uh, local media afterwards and say it's important not to get too high. After bad results, he'd go on to local media and say it's important not to get too low. Like, there was a level kind of an understanding that... He is never too high, never too low, made flesh. Correct. That, I think that's what you're, you're basically getting in Liam Manning as a manager, is you're getting a pragmatist, right? So you're getting someone who doesn't really like taking risks and in, in any walk of life, so in interviews or in, in playing style, but is very forward thinking, both in terms of youth development, uh, use of data and attacking patterns so like it's it's a bit of a mesh and I think that is something that you're, you kind of look for in a modern manager where um it's again it's built on a solid foundation a bit like Rossini but it's not boring football it's still forward-thinking football it's still attacking football um and you know my opinion in, in terms of manager searches is that you should look to recruit a manager who's who is on their way to the top and it wouldn't be a massive surprise if Manning is a Premier League manager in waiting and Bristol City have hired someone who they hope you know they can go they can join him on that ride up towards the top end so yeah to Bristol City fans I would I would just say be patient you know the issue is that they're you know it's, it's a big chalk and cheese appointment in terms of personality type with Pearson um, who tried very hard to win fans over like I don't think that would be the case with Manning but I do think once he starts to get results and starts to improve the, the performance levels of certain players then the, the buy-in from the fans should come soon after that. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. 
It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Uh, in League One, Pompey drew at the very top, and Oxford are now getting back around them. In and indeed around them. Oxford now one point behind Pompey. Uh, Portsmouth two-all draw at Charlton saw them suffer what they have uh, done to so many teams recently. An injury time goal scored by Conor McGrandles. Uh, Will Norris, the Pompey goalkeeper, had a, a bit of a gap at his near post all game here. Alfie May and, and Conor McGrandles making the most of it. I dare say that for Portsmouth, the, the loss of Regan Poole, probably their best player this season, probably one of, if not the best player in League One this season, to an ACL out for the season is almost more damaging than the dropping of two points, I would suggest, in this game. Um, but it means that Oxford pulled one point behind them. Because of that very excitable 3-2 win at uh, Orient, George, um, I want to ask you quickly about the game, but more I want to ask you about who you want to see come in at Oxford what sort of profile you want to see come in Oxford, what you think this situation calls for. Uh, I'd be very interested to hear that. But just for a minute, I'll let you talk about Ruben Rodriguez. Oh, I <laughs> love this guy. I love this now guy. at the top of your Portuguese things power rankings. No, Pastel Donato. He's <laughs> yeah. got a long way to go to beat Pastel Donato. Yeah, I, I, do, I do a... Um, a Monday morning pod. I mean, you, you know this, but I'm talking to those whose ears we're in right now. Mm. Um, I do a Monday morning pod for BBC Radio Oxford called The Dub. And I kind of, and this is what I said this morning was that Ruben Rodriguez in 24 hours basically went from like a good player and a popular player to a really crucial player for Oxford in one ninety minutes to then just a total cult hero with his antics after the game. Yeah. Um, in 24 hours, he's basically gone from being a cog in the system to the main man basically and yeah he was brilliant on, on the day his the finish for the first goal is a bit of quality you know poor playing out from the back from Bryn uh, Mark Harris pounces lays it off to, to Rodriguez who fires into the bottom left hand corner from just outside the box he then was very unlucky not to get a second um, his shot from 25 yards rattled off the inside uh, right hand post and uh, fell to Billy Bowden who nodded it in and then it was he profited from uh, Sparky Mark Harris's poor finishing to, um, to, to get a second goal and he just he pulled the strings and it was another game like I, I don't understand why this keeps happening where managers in my mind at least are not altering their tactics to counter obvious Oxford's obvious weaknesses like the one team that did it was was Wigan who just completely dropped off and let Oxford have the ball and they they got their rewards like Wellens set Leighton up to try and dominate he set Leighton Orion up to try you know, he basically didn't stop the supply line into Rodriguez and he just caused absolute havoc. And it was 3-0. They scored twice, um, you know, to make put it back to 3-2 um, and hit the woodwork shortly after that as well. Uh, but after that, um, you know, Oxford, uh, you know, after that, it was Oxford who, who saw out the game fairly comfortably, albeit um, you know, conceded a lot of territory. So it was, it was, a bit more nerve-wracking than it should have been. You know, they were good value for the 3-0 lead. Um, but in the end, we're very relieved to hear the final whistle go. Who should be the new manager of Oxford United? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I feel like the, the profile of manager that Oxford are going to target might not be the kind that I would necessarily flag up. I think Matt Taylor leaving Rotherham this morning is interesting. He's certainly somebody who 
um, yeah, who I uh, I think the job he did at Exeter and the amount of you know the if you look at the players that he developed at Exeter, the youth team graduates who were then went on to be sold for a fair few quid, like he seems to have that that couple of you know the the the, the joint strength of both being youth development whilst also having a discernible attacking style of play that isn't um, sacrificing too much from a defensive point of view. So he'd be the one I'd be interested in, but I, I've got a feeling that's all happened a bit too quickly. Like Des Buckingham is the is the one that. I think local media and Oxford fans are expecting to to be the the likeliest um, Oxford born, Oxford born Oxford fan. Um, basically, was a coach at Oxford from the age of eighteen. Ended up in the City Football Group um, when he was assistant at Melbourne City when they won the A League. His football DNA is just a lovely mixture of yellows and, and, and New Zealand football and and CFG. He was the assistant in New Zealand and he team coach New Zealand. Yeah, I mean it's a, it's a crazy CV. I mean he's 38 years old and he's already been coaching for, t- for 20 years. Um he'd be an, an interesting appointment. It would, it would be risky, you know, it's coming from a level of football in Mumbai City where he is at the moment as manager where how does that translate? We don't know, but I think he would Yeah, I mean I think uh, Oxford's first home game with the new manager, assuming they come in the next 10 days or so, is going to be um, at home to Bolton on Tuesday, the 25th or whatever it is, towards the end of the month. And I think if it is Des Buckingham's homecoming, it's going to be a sellout and it's going to be a pretty special evening. And for that kind you know, when you lose a, an important coach or manager, I think to galvanise a club by bringing in someone who the majority of fans would love to have back, you know, an Oxford fan would, would, would be some way to go and do it. I also think it would ward off the, the loyalty issues that maybe some fans think we saw with, with Liam Manning. But, for, you know, from a, a management point of view, there's no denying that taking a manager who, who's never managed, um, has no discernible record in, at a football level that is on par necessarily with this, depending on how you how you view the Indian Super League, comes with its own risks. But, you know, City Football Group have a pretty good record um, identifying good coaches. Liam Manning was one of those. And, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd be very excited if we get any news that he's going to, to come in. There were some quite juicy games between top eight teams. George, Derby beat Barnsley 3-0 and Bolton beat Blackpool 1-0. Take one of those. Bolton-Blackpool, let's take. Just a really big win, I would say, this one. Uh, I don't think there was a great deal between the two sides. Um, Thomason's finish was quite... I said to you, when I was was with you and I was watching it and I couldn't really work out from the angle I saw how it went in. He hit it very hard and straight and it kind of flew in. It's like um, a nice stinger, wasn't it? Stinger trajectory. Yeah. And this is, I mean, Bolton have, have got a bit of a knack at the moment for for getting things, um, you know, a, a bit like what I was saying with Leicester earlier, where when they're at their best, they beat teams very cosily and they, they seem to have kind of gotten to a groove now where they can put in performances where they aren't necessarily at their best, but they still managed to come away uh, with the victory. Um, Blackpool had a, a fair bit in the game themselves. Matthew Pennington missed a, a, a free near post header where he bloomed over the bar um, but it was a game of, of kind of few good chances between two very good sides and, and one very good strike ending up winning it for a Bolton side who are profiting at the moment from Oxford and Pompey dropping points Derby 3 Barnsley nil. Uh, you were not so surprised about this result I was uh, expecting Barnsley to give Derby a pretty good working over but actually uh, from an early penalty which yeah I thought it was quite hard to see from the angle that we got uh to what extent, I think it was O'Keefe shoved James Collins in the back. Collins dusted himself down to score. Uh, and then they basically scored a copy and paste goal. Diagonal ball. Cashin winning the flick on. Forsyth running in behind. One of them he scored. 
one of them looped up in the air and there was Collins to head home. So nice comfy home win for, for Derby, George. And I think you've got some interesting thoughts on both sides. Yeah, I mean, this is one for the data nerds, I think, um, with Barnsley having been the side who've kind of been uh, overperforming their XG the most pretty much of any team. In, well, not the only team. There's one in League Two, uh, um, which we'll get on to in a second. Um, but Derby, I, I think it feels to me like they are turning a, a corner. Um, their two wins, and we saw after the Stevenage defeat, we saw the, the, the Derby owners come out and very much um, put their support back behind um, Paul Warm. And the manner of their two wins at home against Northampton and Barnsley have been uh, really impressive. Like They have just been... Uh, you know, they, yes, they've scored seven goals, which is important. They've created a lot of chances, but it's more the way they've just completely shut down both sides. And that, I think, for me, has been the biggest concern with Derby, especially in games against against kind of the better teams. So you look at the Oxford defeat, you look at the, the Bolton defeat, like an inability to have that really solid foundation. Um, whereas both against against Barnsley and, and Cobblers, it felt like um, Warren had that platform from which that they could they could attack. Like yeah, you you mentioned the penalty, which is obviously. Um, gave them a, a decent start in this game, um, but yeah, you look at you know it was total xG uh, was three point two to zero point five against against Barnsley against Northampton it was um, three sorry two point four to zero point two. So if they're going to be posting those kind of numbers consistently, then um, I think we're going to see an improvement fairly soon, and it would make sense that they would as well. Um, it's, it's three home wins in a row without conceding a goal, and you look at the fixture list to come. You know they go to Reading next up. And they host Bristol Rovers, and then away trips to Port Vale and Leighton Orient. Like it's, they've gone through a difficult patch, and the, the fixtures suggest to me that if they continue the level of form they're on now, it's not going to be long till they're pushing their way towards the top. Um, I was just going to say con- concern about Barnsley, who, as I say, I think have been in a false position for the majority of the season and need to improve. Peterborough five, Cambridge nil. About as one-sided as it gets this. Efron Mason-Clark at the double. Kwame Poku at the double. Ricky J. Jones playing well through the middle. Uh, Johnson Clark-Harris has been sort of shunted to one side for the moment on the bench for the last four games. Uh, after his, his move to Bristol Rovers fell through on deadline day, he, was, he did start that next game and maybe one or two after that. But um, Peterborough seemed to have decided that either for motivational reasons or footballing reasons or just for development reasons. Jones is the one that they want to be playing at the moment and he's part of a super dynamic, speedy, skillful front three now. 85 league games he's actually played for Peterborough now. Ricky J. Jones is, is a, a name that we've heard about for, for many years, mainly from Dara McAntony, saying that he's you know the next Ronaldo, R9, but um, only now really getting starts. And I think it's quite exciting. The most important thing to know about Ricky J. Jones is that his surname is Jones. There is a double barrel in his name, and it's his first name, and his first name is Ricky Jade. Good. And a lot of people get is caught that, out with that. Is that Richard Jade? Ricky Jade Jones. Yeah, I know, but you know how normally Ricky is short for Richard? That I've never considered the idea <laughs> that you could nicknameify a yeah. the first part of a double barreled first name. Why not? Anyway, it's not. His name's Ricky okay. Jade Jones. Cool. Thank you. Thanks for asking, though. Cambridge need to be careful. I know that you mentioned earlier about Mark Bonner and his job security. My assumption is that his job is, is, is about as safe as it could be for a manager overseeing a, a team that's obviously struggling for points, partly because he got a new contract a couple of weeks ago, but also because last season Cambridge went through a very extended period of poor form and they stuck with him and it paid off. 
and it worked and it was the right thing to do and Bonner got them out of it. Um, I think they see him as, as the, the best leader of their football club uh, in terms of being the, the head coach. So I'm sure they'll do the same here. But performances and defeats like this against local rivals obviously make it harder to hold your nerve. A couple of narrow away wins now. Wickham nil, Stevenage one or Carlisle nil, Bristol Rovers one. Looking at Wickham Stevenage, it was obviously a game that was blighted by a couple of serious looking injuries to Luke Leahy and Brandon Hanlon, um, both taken to hospital. It's, it sounded like from Matt Bloomfield's interview after the game, like there was positive news um, from both in terms of both of them being, you know, uh, sent away from hospital and recuperating at home. So I really hope both of those two are okay. Um, and it meant there was this game didn't finish till nearly six o'clock on Saturday. And, and you know, you always wonder. With games like that, where there's been you know significant worry if it has an impact on the game itself, and it looked like it might have done here because there, there wasn't much in terms of, of goal action for either side. Um, Wickham, you know, those players who, who saw two of their teammates taken off um, were, were poorer than we used to seeing because I think they've been really impressive recently, especially in possession. Um, Stevenage took a chance, and there was a game of a few chances until Hennings failed to, to convert. Uh, a late one to to make it 2-0. So not a great deal. I don't really learn a great deal from either side, really. And I think you can almost, given the circumstances, maybe just say this was a poor game um, due to stoppages and maybe just the human aspect of, of seeing a couple of serious injuries. A sensational first touch from Hemmings in the build-up to Reed's winning goal for his assist there. Um, talk about poor games. I think Carlisle nil Bristol Rovers one fits the bill. In fact, the winning goal, which was an own goal by Sam Lavelle, who slid in to, to block a low cross from the right, only to see the ball loop up off his knee or his thigh or his something or other and fly into the goal. And just a disgusting goal that should never be the winning goal in a professional football match. Um, and I don't think there was a huge amount in the game either way, but it kind of it, it points to the feeling at the moment that Carlisle are just finding it very difficult um, and also not getting the rubs of those greens. Um, but for, for Andy Mangan, it's it's great stuff. He's having one of the most fun caretaker spells of all time, the Bristol Rovers caretaker. And um, while he is still overseeing wins, Bristol Rovers can kind of relax about finding a replacement and see if maybe they think he might be the one to to galvanise this squad, uh, not just kind of on a motivational and a personal level, but hopefully on a footballing level as well. A couple more wins like this, and they, they really do get quite close to the playoffs. So uh, Bristol Rovers winning 1-0 at Carlisle. Fleet would be Exeter 3-0. Now, Exeter have now lost seven games in their last eight, only one point in eight games. They've lost six of those seven defeats by two goals or more. They've lost six of those seven defeats without scoring. Uh, all is not well at Exeter, and I dare say it doesn't help Gary Caldwell that his very popular and successful predecessor, Matt Taylor, has just been sacked by Rotherham in the league above. Um, but I'd prefer to talk about Fleetwood under Johnson, Lee Johnson to be specific, because it certainly feels better, Fleetwood under Lee Johnson. And now we're 10 games in, 10 league games, we can look at the numbers. 15 points, 1.5 points per game, healthy return. Yeah, uh, considering where they were when he took over. 15 goals scored, 1.5 goals a game and 15 goals conceded. And they've only failed to score in, in two of those 10. So uh, I, th- I feel like, George, we can say pretty definitively now, 10 games in, Lee Johnson at Fleetwood has been a good thing. Yeah, for sure. And, and I don't think it's a massive surprise. Like I know... There was a, you know, there, there was a lot of pre-season pessimism around Fleetwood. I think a lot of that was due to Andy Pilly, um and him being sent to, to jail. Like, a, you know, when your owner's being sent to prison, that's probably not a, a, a great reason to get excited about your football club. 
you know, and Scott Brown last season seemed to have quite a promising first campaign. But like you look at the squad and you look at the team and you look at the team that, that Johnson put out for this one. Like there's a lot of quality in this side. There's like a lot of proven, I would say, League One quality in this side. Um, you look at the uh, goal scorers, you know, Ryan Broom has, has been a, a positive player at this level for a, for a long time. Uh, Sarpong Wiradu's shown over the last 18 months or so that he's a really promising player. Uh, Jack Marriott leading the line is someone who all season has been a, a really good um you know he's, he's stayed fit and he gets into good goal scoring positions Jaden Stockley is the target man like there's enough quality in this squad Danny Mayer as well that there's no way they should be down where they are and again with Lee Johnson I think given the job at Sunderland maybe there's a bit of complacency about the fact that he is a, a, a very good coach who's achieved success in the past and has built some really good attacking football teams so I don't think it's a massive surprise that the transition from um from Brown to Johnson has been uh, one that has seen that has seen an improvement when you look at what he's working with, um, and I and I I think it's probably fairly sustainable. Although, you know, let's see what happens with those streaks because we know that Streaky Lee, if he's anything, he's fairly streaky. We haven't necessarily seen it so far. Um, the fixture list has been relatively kind. They've they've done what they needed to do against teams in that sort of bottom eight. I mean, they're still in the relegation zone, but I think feels like they're operating at a level above that right now. They have got a horrendous like mid-December till end of January. So there could be a, a, a bad streak around that time. But no, I've been really impressed and just looking at the the tactics behind it as well. You know, you talk about the personnel. I think the way that he's going about it is is good to see. It's a, it's a 4-3-3 with focus on like wide build-up, but not wide build-up as in get the ball wide and sling in crosses. In fact, one of the big decisions, as I perceive it, that he had to make was do you play Jaden Stockley and Jack Marriott up front? They're presumably both on pretty hefty League One wages because of their pedigree, but playing Jaden Stockley and Jack Marriott up front because of the profiles that they have, one of them being a real poacher type and one of them being a real target man type, and neither of them being particularly like complete or well-rounded forwards in terms of the other aspects of the game. If you're going to play them up top, you have to play either 4-4-2 or 3-5-2, and Gen- and generally, you're going to have to try and get the best out of them, which means trying to hit Stockley's head or chest quite a lot. And that didn't necessarily fit the bill of how I thought Lee Johnson would approach things. And he hasn't. In fact, Stockley is very much a bench option at the moment. Um, Marriott is the number nine and he is poaching and poaching very, very well. But the build-up's all done down the sides, really. It's a 4-3-3 with a, uh, a deep central midfielder and then outside centre midfielders. Uh, on Saturday, it was Mayer and Broom um, playing really wide on the left. Mayer on the right, Broom combining with the fullbacks, Earl on the left and Rooney on the right. And then wide forwards as well. Uh, they've got a, a decent group of them. Omakere, uh, Phoenix Patterson, who scored a nice free kick. Junior Cortina, who we've spoken about quite a lot. Whoever it may be, they've got that 1v1 quality and talent as well. So uh, I like the approach. It's looking good and it, it's working uh, for Fleetwood. Uh, Cobblers beat Burton 2-0. Needed this one, I think. Um, Burton's really positive October is now firmly in the rearview mirror. Uh, poor performance from them and, and Northampton worthy winners. Uh, took two good finishes. Uh, a really nice strike from Brighton Loney, Mark Leonard. Uh, and then Sam Hosk with his ninth of the season. I note that his goals per 90 is exactly the same this season in League, was, <laughs> uh, in League One as it was in League Two last season. So he, Although he's had a few games where he hasn't hit the, uh, hit the heights that we expect from him, um, he is still doing the business. Uh, and... Yeah, Northampton really needed that win and, and got it. I think I read out the stats between 
uh, the other week about Burton, their, their bad start and their amazing October. And the conclusion was basically the underlying numbers didn't look much different. Um, and and I, you often say that teams are a reflection of their manager and, and Mamre is obviously such a front-footed personality, a really like emotional leader. And I, I wonder whether in that sense, a, a, a club like Burton going through kind of really high spells of form and, and then the other side of the coin might be not unsurprising. Uh, we will see how that goes from here. And then Shrewsbury 3, Reading 2, George, Reading 2-1 up heading into injury time. But they've lost every single away game this season. And this was the latest. It is... Um... Yeah, I mean, for, for Reading fans at the moment, having seen them squander a 2 0 lead <coughs> over Pompey, draw the game 2 all, sorry, lose again 3 2, and then do it again at Shrewsbury, who are a side that, you know, don't score many goals. You'd think if you want to take a 2 0 lead against somebody and, and, and see it out fairly safely, they'd probably be the team that you would you would choose. Um, really disappointing for them. Another individual error, um, you know, it seems to be the case, I guess, because it's a young side, it's likely, but it was Harvey Nibs this time who was caught in possession. After Smith and Ballard um, had put Reading ahead, um, Sam Smith Ballard's often pretty sad, and this was another one that that followed that line. Um, but for yeah, I mean for for Shrewsbury, it's um, yeah, it's a, it's a big win, and it's a three two victory for them, especially against the side. You know, the, for, for Shrews, it's got to be a case of trying to ensure that they that they are safe this season. They've got a manager in Matt Taylor who maybe would have come under some pressure if they hadn't won this game. Um, but I, I think the story from this is. Reading's con- continual inability to to get over the line, and for Ruben Sellers now, you know we we don't know what's going on right now. There seems to be. Uh, I read Mark Bowen put out a statement on the official Reading site uh, last week that suggested that conversations are still ongoing with regards to um, prospective owners. Uh, he said that the club are no longer under embargo after the HMRC bill was paid. Although for the next three windows, they won't be able to pay any fees or compensation at all in recruitment. It's it's just a really sad situation at the moment for Reading, both on and off the pitch. Lincoln drew one all with Port Vale and Cheltenham by the same scoreline. One all drew with Wigan. In League Two, we had two new managers in the dugout. And how's this for a quirk? Their teams both conceded in the first minute. In fact, for Stephen Clements, yes. the new Gillingham manager, the first ever game at senior level. No period of clemency for clemency. Way. First, a first minute concession at Wrexham. Um, Look, we both think that the extent to which the owner, Brad Gallinson, has been public, particularly through his Twitter account, about style of play and putting such emphasis on what he thinks is a necessary change of style of play puts potentially unnecessary pressure on a manager because everyone knows it and, and it's... You know, it's easy to measure against, but actually measuring style of play is maybe not as easy as some people think. And also to focus on style of play, particularly on a short-term basis, can lead to you missing actually really important things. Um, we see it a little bit with Ray- Wayne Rooney at the moment, where albeit performances and results are genuinely poor, uh, it is not helped by the fact that the club said certain things when sacking John Eustace and hiring Wayne Rooney, which become easy sticks to beat you with. So, uh, Stephen Clements uh, has been an assistant to Steve Bruce, a first-team coach for Steve Bruce, uh, on a couple of different occasions, and he's tasked with turning Gillingham into this nice technical attacking team. Uh, They've scored fewer than one goal per game this season, so there's a bit of work to do. Um, But... 
you have to still be strong defending your own box. And Gillingham were definitely that under Neil Harris. Um, they weren't that here. Now, it's hard against Wrexham. They have a, a massive team. Uh, Ollie Palmer and Ben Toza both scoring, both big guys, both uh, attacks that came down the sides and deliveries into the box. I'm not saying it's easy. Wrexham are very, very good. But Jills need to be quite careful, I think, that in their pursuit of uh, great football, they don't throw away certain bits of the foundation uh, and start sliding. Um, it's it's an interesting job for Stephen Clements because it's a, it's a good job. Gillingham clearly ambitious. They have a, a, an impressive squad and uh, there's there's plenty for him to get his teeth into. Um, but this was a, a disappointing start. Wrexham chugging along nicely with five wins in six. Just looking very strong all over the pitch, aren't they? You know, those, those early matches where they conceded five with Ben Foster in goal. That'll be a great episode for the Doc now, I think we can say, but it's not going to make much of a difference. Uh, I think they have a really good team, really good players, pretty strong in all areas and likely to go up in the autos. 2-0 uh, win against Jills. What did you make of um, Bradford appointing Graham Alexander to replace Mark Hughes? They also conceded in the first minute of his first game and lost 2-1 to Barrow. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm particularly enamoured with the appointment. Um, he's someone who did a good job at Salford, of course, has done previously good jobs at Fleetwood and Scunthorpe. There's just something about taking a manager who has just been sacked from a club who are kind of operating, <clears throat> well, certainly had pre-season ambitions that were the same as yours um, and are currently higher in the table where you, you, it feels unlikely to me that had you offered the Bradford owners, uh, Graham Alexander, well, you know, just before they sat Mark Hughes, would they have made that swap? It feels to me like, for whatever reason, the managers who were maybe identified to start with didn't come off. Um, and they've got a manager now, you know, in fairness to Alexander, he has to prove himself now. This is an incredibly important job for him in order to kind of preserve his reputation. And he's certainly not without merit. And in fairness, on, on open, in this game here, it's a frustration for Bradford and it's been a story that's been going on for far too long at home where they were they were okay. You know, they won the XG battle, they limited Barrow to very little, they were fairly wasted in front of goal with Tyler Smith. The goal scorer missing a couple of big chances. Um, maybe Alexander's playing style, you know, which is more attritional maybe than, than what was desired at MK Dons, might be a better fit at Bradford. You know, it's kind of a, a win at any cost mentality rather than uh, style over substance, uh, which is what we've seen from MK Don sometimes, or style more important than substance. But um, yeah, I wouldn't say I'm overly enamoured in th the contract until June 2026. Again, it feels like a kind of unnecessary three-year deal for a, a you know a, a club who haven't made the best decisions over the last decade or so. And what about their victors, Barrow, the conquerors? Because, whisper it quietly, George, they're in sixth spot. 28 points from 17 games. They've gone to Bradford and won. Uh, they have this weird fictionalist quirk where they've played 17 games, 10 away and seven at home. And at home, three wins, four draws, just under two points per game. So there's an imbalance there. They're going to have a nice little run of home games. In fact, it's five in their next eight. How good do you think Barrow are? I find it really hard to say... I, I do not think that they are a great attacking side. Like, that doesn't mean that they're not a good side. I just think that they are um, not the best at creating consistent goal-scoring chances. Like they, Their home form, as you say, is very good. They've twice drawn nil-nil at home. They've scored one goal in, their, in three of their other games. So basically in f what is that, five of their seven home games, they've scored a solitary goal or less, which 
I don't think there's necessarily evidence to suggest that they are going to consistently pick up or they're going to stay unbeaten at home. Um, but defensively, they are rock solid, and that's the most important thing. There's also another quirk of the the kind of fixture calendar where they've they've played the top four and they've played the bottom um, eight, six. So that in itself as well kind of suggests that they've had uh, and against the top four, <laughs> they've seven <laughs> and against the top four they've you know they've been beaten by Stockport and, and Mansfield and they basically beaten all of the teams towards the bottom end apart from Grimsby who they were beaten by um away from home so basically who knows I think that they're, they're certainly one of these sides along with Crewe and uh, Accrington who you know are fighting to punch above their weight and end up in the in the top seven like I know Crewe fans will be hoping that they can force their way into the you know into the promotion picture I just I just personally can't really see it despite their impressive win on Saturday um, but I think Barrow given how just how good they are defensively and how adept they are at preventing teams from creating consistent chances it feels like a pretty good blueprint for success although I think their def- attacking deficiencies might end up being the thing that, that stops them from being a side that can really push up yeah crew beat knots as you referred to their 1-0 deep 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 into added time Courtney Baker-Richardson scoring a penalty after a Jody Jones handball. Uh, there was a lot of aggro here. Uh, it's difficult when you're not there and you're just going off what people are tweeting to really get a proper view of the situation. So I won't weigh in with any thoughts on what happened at the Mourn Flake uh, with the Notts County fans and the linesmans, etc. Uh, all of it seems pretty stupid and I think the sort of thing that would be great if it didn't happen um, it was an even game before the penalty probably a draw would have been a fair result um, Crew had had more shots more shots inside the box but Knott's had a, a chance or two of their own uh, but Crew get the win what a big win keep on rolling at uh, George one team that is definitely good good at attacking good at defending good at winning football matches Stockport County league leaders 4-2 winners at Swindon 11 in a row 11 wins. And now you are livid about this, aren't you? Eh? You are livid about the lack of media coverage from the MSM (laughs) (laughs) about Messi, Suarez, Neymar. No, MSN. About the uh, how incredible an achievement this is and nobody's talking about it. Like I was on the tube in into work this morning. Oh, Not a single person was talking about Stockport's 11 in a row. It was all about cabinet reshuffles. Which is a disgrace. Yeah. Which is a disgrace because it's absolutely insane what they're doing. Like, are people just what? Why? Why is there not more being talked about? It, winning eleven league matches in a row is sensational, and I want to. I wanted to know what the record for the longest winning runs are, all time, but also ideally of the the modern era. I remember Jack Grealish slash Dean Smith's Aston Villa uh, won ten in a row a couple of years ago. Um, I have found from someone called Liam Richardson, uh, not that one, on Twitter, uh, a list of EFL records. And the 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 record in the EFL for consecutive league wins, uh, Preston North End, Manchester United and Bristol City in the years 1950-51, uh, 1904-05 and 1905-06. So back in the early 1900s, uh, 14 in a row was so possible that that two teams did it in consecutive seasons. What wow. a sport. What a mad sport that must have been. Even more nuts, mate. Yeah. Right? Yes. 13 league wins in a row has happened six times. It happened twice in the same division in 1891-92. Goodness me. Sunderland and North End. 
as if you could forget. Uh, 1892, the next year, Birmingham City. Th- what the hell was going on between 1890 and 1906 that this this number of teams were able to rattle off this number of consecutive victory- victories? Absolutely nuts. Uh, we also had 13 wins from Spurs in Div 1, 1959-60, uh, Newcastle Div 2, 91-92, um, and uh, Reading in 85-86. Uh, but in the year 2000 and onwards, in the in this millennium, Luton Town and Charlton Athletic, the only teams to have won 12 games in a row. So if Stockport win their next match, they will be equaling the record of Luton and Charlton of 12 league wins in a row. They're at home to Colchester United on Saturday uh, and then Newport the one after to go for 13 in a row. I, I really want it to happen. I think this is absolutely awesome. I think even in the time we've been doing the pod, how many amazing teams we've covered and none of them have won 11 in a row since we've been doing the pod. It's absolutely sensational. And they beat Swindon, Noah Lafay or Louis Barry on the score sheet, which is unusual. That that had only happened once in the previous 14 games that, that either Barry or Lafay had not scored. It was Collar, it was Camps, it was Bailey, it was Wooten. Uh, the return of Kyle Wooten, as you talked about on the betting show, is is big for them, massive for them, literally, because physically he's he's pretty massive, proper good target man type. Uh, but I think Odin Bailey's interesting as well. 23 now, uh, one of those guys who's always considered a very talented kid at Birmingham, capable of spectacular stuff, but but didn't quite find a home, didn't find consistent minutes at senior level. Maybe playing for this team with solid foundations is perfect for someone like that to thrive because... He's had some great assists this season, shown great vision, but he's got this spectacular strike in him as well. It was a, a cracking, cracking goal. Salford won Mansfield two. I think if we're celebrating 11 wins in a row, how about 16 unbeaten to start the season? Ooh. Eight wins, eight draws, four wins in a row for Stags. <clears throat> I enjoyed, because um, I'm on Football Weekly tomorrow morning, and Max Rushton tweeted uh, saying, any questions for the guys, the EFL questions? Yeah. And someone just replied saying, praise for Nigel Clough. Which I thought was a good question, and and I agree because he does deserve immense praise for what they're doing. Um, this was another tricky game for Mansfield, going to a Salford side whose performance levels have, I think, drastically improved over the last few weeks. Like credit to uh, those at the club who've retained the faith in Neil Wood, because I think we are now seeing a team that I'm pretty confident are going to be absolutely fine this season and probably have enough about them to challenge the top seven. Um, and you know, with Matt Smith, they have the top goal scorer in the league and, and a really big threat. And Mansfield were able to navigate this challenge. You know, Jordan Barry scored the first. Matt Smith did what he does and kind of stooped. Uh, he stooped whilst the defender jumped and he headed the ball home. Um, Keeler Dunn scoring a very rare goal for him, given that it was from five yards rather than 25 yards. But they had to stand up to a barrage. It's not often that we've seen Mansfield have to deal with this, where in the second half, Salford piled on the pressure and Mansfield had to kind of take evasive action in order to make sure that they managed to come away with, with all three points and they did it well. So um, their record is impressive. It, you know, in terms of the top three from here, Mansfield have obviously been a cursed side for much of the, the last five five years or so in League Two. But I'd be very, very surprised from here if they, if they managed to blow this because they are consistently so good. Wimbledon got a much-needed win, beating Doncaster 2-0 in the Don, Don, Derby. Don, 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 Don. <laughs> Five shots to eight in this game, two shots on target to one. So not a classic, but the difference was Ali Al-Hamadi, mm. who 
had, had, had only scored in two of his 13 starts this season, despite having the second highest XG per 90 in the league behind Macaulay Langstaff. It has been feast or famine for Al Hamadi uh, in the last, well, in this calendar year, because in the first part of, of the year, at the end of last season, he scored for fun. Uh, this season, he was experiencing the other side of the pillow. But his second goal was amazing, um, disrupting the centre-back, getting on the ball, latching onto it, and then firing it into the top corner. I wanted to show some love for the movement leading up to his first goal as well, when uh, corner came in, got pumped straight up in the air, and while everyone stood still to see what would happen, Al Hamadi made a dart to, to lose his man, uh, get into the six-yard box, and, and the ball was headed across, and he tapped it in. So uh, let's see what happens from here. We kind of... I think we both believe that there's a chance that this could uh, could signal the start of a, of a serious run of form. Uh, he does so much more than score anyway, so even if he isn't, he's still providing a lot to the team, creating chances, uh, dribbling, carrying the ball, winning fouls. A uh, really, really quality player and, and the match winner here. George, big game down the bottom. Tranmere had 10 points from 16 games. Forrest Green... 13 from 15, both of them looking nervously upwards as the teams above them start moving away from them. Tranmere get the win, 3-0 to bring themselves level on points with FGR. Yeah, and I think for Nigel Adkins, it's it's not often that you see a manager appointed as caretaker and, and you can kind of feel that the club are just kind of waiting for a good um, run of results in order to, to give Adkins a job. <laughs> And they went on a really poor run and were beaten in four consecutive games. And they still gave Atkins a job, which felt like a, a really punchy show of faith in someone, of course, who's got a, a, a big reputation in the game. Um, and they were pretty impressive here. You know, I thought Forest Green were, were very poor until they were 2-0 down. And then the red card came, which didn't help their their, their case at all. Um, the first goal was, was an own goal. Um, from Tranmere before Christian Dennis made it 2-0 shortly after half-time. Um, there'll be massive frustration, I think, for, for Forest Green now that they were, you know, they went to a side so short of form and a relegation rival and were unable to really hurt them when it was 11 v 11. Um, and it was basically until game state dictated they could come into it a little bit. And again, you look through the the Forest Green side. I mean, Forest Green only had one player who started the game uh, from 1-11. to uh, and he uh, and he was sent off. No. <laughs> um, but I, I I know I've already done this on this pod, so I know it's a bit repetitive. But like Dini, Moore, Taylor, um, Darbo, like there's just there's enough quality surely in the in this side to be better than what we're seeing right now. I feel um, like they really lack substance, and yeah. that's a very annoying thing. How because can a team of Troy Dini lack lack substance? It's hard to define, isn't it? Minerals would be another word I would I would use, but. <laughs> I don't really know how to define it, but I think you notice it when you see the way that they respond to hardship, their reaction to going behind, their reaction to difficult periods in games is not good enough. I, I see an absence of substance and an absence of minerals of, of forest yeah. green. Um, and ironically, it's not sustainable. That is at their very core. Uh, Grimsby beat Morecambe 3-2. A big one for Grimsby and their caretaker managers. Uh, Morecambe having taken the lead in this game as well, but Grimsby came back. Um, for me, the main excitement is to see Anthony Driscoll-Glennon back playing, left back for Grimsby. He really fell out of favour, it seemed, with, with Paul Hurst. But I, I believe that he has one of the best left pegs uh, in League Two. I believe that the quality of his delivery from the left side, particularly with a target like Danny Rose in the middle, 
or as was the case for his assist, uh, Raquel Pike, in this instance, I think you get a ton if you can build a team that has Glennon in it that maybe, you know, accentuates his strengths and his crossing ability and, and maybe hides whatever his weaknesses may be, which I assume are, are more about the defensive side of the game. So uh, good to see Driscoll Glennon back playing and, and good to see Grimsby winning because it's been a tough few weeks and months for them. Crawley back winning as well. They beat Aki 3-1 from behind as well. Yeah, after a, their own difficult run of, of, of results um, to go 1-0 down at home and to come back in the way they did against an Accrington side who themselves have ambitions of, of, of getting into the top seven was significant. Um, Daniel Orsi, the Crawley striker, doing doing the Orsi celebration. Um, yeah, I mean, this was a, a, a decent display from them, um, crowned off with, well, no, Will Wright scored the goal in, in between the two. Um, it wasn't the kind of Crawley displays that we, we saw early on in the campaign with kind of being a constant threat, but they, they were fairly good value for the win. Accrington games just continue to be very, very end-to-end. Um, you know, they're always a, a good value to um, create chances themselves, but there's not that defensive solidity. And, and it feels like I've seen Accrington win a lot of games that went the way the Saturday went, but this time around it was Crawley who were the, the more clinical and able to get the three points. So Harrogate beat Walsall. This is insane. Yeah, I thought you might say that. So Harrogate... A- winning quite a lot of games they're losing quite a lot of games as well uh, they've lost nine they've won seven they've drawn one uh, in this instance they had to get through sustained Walsall pressure uh, and then George Thompson dribbled in one from range uh, somehow got past Owen Evans and Harrogate left with all three points and gotta be honest there's a lot of of confusion amongst our ranks uh, and amongst the ranks of, of any League 2 observers, and in particular anyone who's watching Harrogate play at the moment, as to how they're they're winning this amount of football matches, to be honest. Now, using XG to analyse individual matches yeah, and taking it really seriously is, is not ideal, has some issues with that. Um, but I thought I'd have a look at their seven wins and see how many times they've lost the XG battle by more than half a goal. Uh, often you see people saying a team's lost the XG if there's... 0.1, 0.2 in it, that is fairly negligible and I don't think that's the right use of it. Um, but by more than half a goal, you know, then you can be fairly sure that on the balance of play, um, they didn't have the better of it, so to speak. Um, and of their seven wins, they've lost the XG by more than half a goal in five of their seven wins. Uh, they've been outshot, to use a very simple metric, in 14 of their 16 games. And the most confusing thing, George, is I assumed that they'd have a ridiculously high conversion rate like suggesting great fortune or a hot streak in front of goal. It's actually not the case. They have League Two's second worst conversion rate, right? On top of taking the fewest shots in the division, the second worst conversion rate. So how have they won seven football matches? Crazy. They've scored the most penalties in the league, which probably helps boost the goals tally. Four pens in in in, uh, 16 games. That probably, well, that definitely can't be relied on. No team gets a pen every four games on average. Quite an interesting one defensively, Harrogate. They they face quite a few shots, but in fairness, they do def- they do seem to have a pretty good force field around their goal in terms of bodies between the person taking the shot and goal. Their XG per shot against is decent. Um, only four teams have conceded more from open play, so they are still conceding quite a lot of goals, and their defensive set-piece record is terrible. So I was trying to find conclusion in the numbers. If anything, it made me more confused. Um, I guess you could say they show some grit at the back, they have, you know, in comparison to Forest Green, as I just said, they've got that decent spirit, seemingly, where they 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 can handle being up against is, it for long periods of time. Is this not all... These are the things that people talk about 
But when they concede one, they don't concede another and then another. Yeah, I mean, that's something, I guess. That's what but I'm like, talking about. But the, the, the grit and the spirit, I think, are almost inventions to explain the unexplainable. Well, I was trying to explain it, and that's where I came down. Exactly. So there you go. But I, so I, and I would just say that I think of, you know, grit and spirit can take you so far, and eventually that grit or spirit will probably wane. And I, I still, and, you know, I don't want to stick the boot in because I, I still think that what Simon Weaver does at Harrogate to make them competitive at League Two level is absolutely incredible. But I think it is a matter of time until Harrogate go on a, a pretty lengthy winless run unless their performances improve. Yeah. They've won 40% of their games this season. I think it's fair to say we don't expect them to win 40% <laughs> no. of the next 20 games, no. let's say. Um, but they do have a nine-point buffer on the bottom too. So there you go. That's been a good start to the season for them. Colu and Sutton drew one all. It was a late, late, late equaliser from former Colu centre-back Omar Shomi. Uh, Sutton's first point away from home of the season. Um, the, the game was... I hoped going to be won by one of the goals of the season in League Two, Arthur Reed dancing his way through. Uh, he's looked so good this season for Cole Yu, uh, on the ball, Arthur Reed, uh, and scored a fantastic goal. And Newport and MK Dons drew nil nil in a match that happened just off the M4 in South Wales. <laughs> Cheers! Thanks very much for listening. Thanks to Betfair for sponsoring this podcast. Please vote for us in the FSA Awards. It'd be seriously fun if we win. The links in the description of the podcast. See you again on Thursday. Go out.